Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. It's March 4th, 2008, in Budgery, Australia. An SUV makes its way down a narrow road, its tires kicking up clouds of dirt that dance in the afternoon light. 22-year-old Julian Buckwald and his girlfriend, 17-year-old Carolyn Watson, are on a date. Their plan is to travel deep into the vast expanse of land that belongs to Julian's family, something they've done countless times before. Hiking is one of their main hobbies, but this day is going to be even more special than usual. Julian has prepared a picnic which they plan on eating when they reach the stunningly beautiful waterfall in the woods. As they continue down the dirt road, Julian spots something. He eases his foot on the brake and guides the car to a stop at the side of the road. He explains to Carolyn that he noticed a dead animal next to the track, and he wants to inspect it. Now, I know, this might sound a little strange, but it's not out of character for Julian. You see, he enjoys examining roadkill when he comes across it to find out how it died and check if it's fresh and intact enough to be cooked. Carolyn's used to Julian's peculiar interest, but doesn't share his passion for roadside investigation. So she stays in the car while Julian disappears down the track and out of view. She listens to music, whiling away the time until her boyfriend returns. Ten minutes later, with no sign of Julian, Carolyn begins to worry. It doesn't usually take this long to check out animal remains. She glances in one of the car's mirrors, hoping to spot him making his way back. But it's not Julian she sees. The dark figure of a man is running towards the car. He's dressed in black, with a balaclava pulled over his head, obscuring his features. Before Carolyn can even think about locking the door, the man yanks the handle and drags her out of the car. A strip of duct tape is quickly pulled across her mouth. Her hands and legs are bound with thick, knotted rope. Silenced and secured, and with no means of escape, the man lifts her into the trunk of the car. He slams the lid, casting her into inky darkness. The car roars to life and then accelerates away from the side of the road, leaving Julian behind, possibly dead in the dirt. The disappearance of the young lovers shocks the local community. After all, who would want to harm this devout Christian couple? That's the question Victoria police hope to answer. The investigation is headed by Detective Sergeant Matthew Gleason. But like any case of this magnitude, it requires a huge team to work together. Faced with endless acres of unforgiving scrubland and no clues as to their whereabouts, locating the pair feels like an impossible task. 
events take an even more sinister turn when a letter arrives from a satanic cult associated with ritualistic sacrifice. It might sound like a depraved story from the mind of Stephen King, but we can assure you, this really happened. My name is Mark Dodson, and welcome to Detectives Don't Sleep. Each week we'll shadow the world's most remarkable sleuths, real detectives who worked extraordinary cases. When two young lovers go missing in the rural Australian town of Budgery, cops are called by the victim's family. There are no witnesses to the crime and no clues to help locate the missing couple. And then, a letter from a fledgling satanic cult threatens to change the whole course of the investigation. Are Carolyn and Julian about to become the group's first human sacrifices, or does something even more sinister await them? From Noiser, this is Lost in the Woods, and this is Detectives Don't Sleep. Julian's mother is at home. The light's beginning to fade, and it's well past 3 p.m., the time Julian told his mother he would be home. It isn't like him to break a promise. She knows that her son and his girlfriend won't be getting up to any funny business. After all, they're good Christians, devout in their faith to God. That's why she's worrying about her son's no-show. She tries calling Julian and Carolyn again, but neither answers. She needs to do something, anything. So she heads outside. She searches in some nearby alcoves, hoping to find the young couple, but they're nowhere to be seen. She makes her way to the path that leads to the property's perimeter fence and scans the road. Maybe she'll hear the faraway roar of a car engine or catch sight of his SUV turning the corner. However, the road is empty. There's no sign of Julian's car. But there is something. Sticking out of a section of the fence is a glass bottle. Inside, there's a thin scroll of paper. Julian's mother screws the top off and fishes out the piece of paper. She unfurls it and tries to make sense of the message that's been scrawled on it. Now, with this being a family show and all, I can't read the message out as it was written. There's just too much explicit language. But the gist of the message is this. The sender of the letter is angered by the Buckwald family's Christian beliefs. They claim that they've kidnapped her son and his girlfriend to teach the family a lesson. And they will be returned if she promises not to go to the police. If she does, the sender claims they'll torture Julian and set Carolyn on fire as a sacrifice to their God. As you can imagine, the letter terrifies Julian's mother. Immediately, against the sender's wishes, she phones the cops. The police arrive and study the horrifying message. The threats of torture are bad enough, but there's more. The paper is covered in satanic symbols and contains a reference to a cult known as the Order of the Nine Angles. 
When police investigators contact Carolyn's family to inform them of their daughter's disappearance, they discover that the Watson family also received a note. However, theirs was delivered 10 days ago. When Carolyn's father contacted the police and explained its contents, nothing was done about it. The officers who were dispatched to investigate simply thought it was some sort of sick prank. However, in the wake of Carolyn's disappearance, the note is seen for what it really is, a deadly threat. When police retrieve the note and study it, they find that the handwriting, as well as the satanic emblems, have been penned by the same hand. The explicit reference of the Order of the Nine Angles is present in this letter, too. It's now imperative that the police find out everything they can about this secretive cult. The Order of the Nine Angles, founded in the UK in the 1970s, are an extremist satanic group. They deplore organized religion, preach hate, and even promote the idea of ritual sacrifice. Members of the Order of the Nine Angles are encouraged to join military units and religious institutions in order to bring those organizations down from within. There's also a supernatural element to their beliefs. They think that their transgressions will allow evil energy to seep into the world. If the Order of the Nine Angles really do have Julian and Carolyn, their track record suggests that the contents of the letters are far from empty threats. Detectives are pretty certain that the group doesn't have a faction in Australia, but fear that this could be how they plan on announcing themselves. Could the letters be a simple diversion, designed to waste the police's time and lead them away from the real kidnappers? After all, if the Order of the Nine Angles really wanted to make headlines, wouldn't they begin their operations in a densely populated city like Melbourne or Sydney? The following day, on March 5th, the rescue operation begins. The sky is cloudless and the sun beats down oppressively casting long shadows on the parched earth. As temperatures soar into the high 90s, a large group of police officers begin their trawl through the vast 1,200-acre site. The ground beneath their feet is uneven and treacherous, seemingly resisting their advance. The bush, already thick at the exterior of the property, becomes dense and uncompromising the further they venture in. A heavy silence hangs in the air, broken only by the buzzing of bugs and the sporadic squawks of watchful birds perched high in the towering trees. Twigs snap and leaves rustle as the officers push ever further into the bush. It's time-consuming, exhausting work. Sweat stains the back of their uniforms, and officers know that they're fighting a losing battle against an ever-ticking clock. But... After days of relentless searching, there's still no sign of the pair. The ground search continues while the police officers venture into nearby towns to begin interviewing some of the locals who knew the couple. The police start their interviews in the church. Makes sense, since this is where they spent most of their time. 
It's a small, white timber building, surrounded by green fields and trees. The windows, like elongated portholes of a ship, are edged with yellow paint. A large wooden cross seems to grow out of the corrugated roof. Officers walk to the front door and enter the hallowed building. At first, they ask the pastor of the church about the threatening, hate-filled letters sent to the Watson and Buckwald families to get his take from a religious perspective. The pastor's response, however, is not what anyone was expecting. He thinks that the letters are nothing more than a cover story, an intricate one, but a cover nonetheless. You see, he spent many hours with Julian and Carolyn, and he knows them intimately. They're young and in love, They're good kids, both are devout in their faith and have a good relationship with God. And despite dating for almost two years, the couple have yet to kiss or even hug. The only real outward sign that they were in a relationship at all was the fact that they held hands sometimes, saving any further physical displays of affection until they were married, which is something they both want to do. But there's a problem. You see, as Carolyn is only 17, she can't legally get married. It's a topic that the two regularly discuss with the pastor. Julian is desperate to have the ceremony as soon as Carolyn turns 18, but she'd rather hold off until she can finish her studies. Now, with this in mind, the pastor tells police his own theory on what has happened. He believes that Julian has convinced Carolyn to elope, and they use the kidnapping scheme as a cover. It's certainly plausible, but it also begs a question. If Julian and Carolyn are as upstanding and virtuous as the pastor suggests, why would they have sent such threatening messages to their families as their cover story? I mean, surely they'd know how terrified their parents would be. Also, the foul graphic language just seems pretty out of character. It's a bit far-fetched. I mean, after all, Carolyn was about to turn 18 soon. The lovebirds had already spent two years together, so why would they go to all that trouble and heartache for the sake of a couple of months? American Criminal is a new true crime podcast from the studio behind American Scandal and American History Tellers. Every week, you'll fall deeper into the riveting stories of the country's most clever, craven, and cruel criminals. Fraud, theft, murder, and worse. Whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the whole story until now. The debut season tackles one of the most sensational cases of the 20th century, the Menendez murders. In 1989, young Lyle and Eric Menendez brutally shot their own parents. Prosecutors and the press said it was a multi-million dollar inheritance that led two greedy rich kids to murder. But the picture-perfect facade this Hollywood family built hid troubling abuse. Could these teenagers have been driven to kill? Or was it even in self-defense? Listen now. Go to AmericanCriminal.com or search for and follow American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, listeners. Did you know you can listen to new episodes of Detectives Don't Sleep 
a week early by subscribing to Noiser Plus. For more information, head to Noiser.com or click the link in the episode description. Despite a widespread search, there's still no sign of the couple and no further clues. And because the crime was committed in such a rural place, there are no witnesses, no CCTV, almost nothing at all for the police to go on. They start to consider the haunting prospect that they're now searching for human remains. But then, a miracle happens. It's March 11th, 2008, a week since Carolyn and Julian disappeared. A tractor trundles down a narrow road near Alpine National Park, approximately 250 miles away from where police officers are conducting their search and rescue mission. The track snakes its way through a dense forest, which looms over the farmer, blotting out most of the sun's rays. Now, up ahead, something stirs in the trees. There's a blur of movement, and then two young people stumble out onto the path. Their clothing is soaked with sweat. Their lips are dry and cracked. Their skin is sunburnt, and their hair, it's matted, it's filthy. Fluid-filled blisters and oozing cuts cover their bodies. The farmer stops and helps them onto his tractor before delivering them to the hospital. On the way, they introduce themselves as Julian Buckwald and Carolyn Watson. When they arrive at the hospital, one of the workers there immediately notifies the Watson and Buckwald families of their children's miraculous appearance. Then they call the police. Doctors tend to Julian and Carolyn's immediate needs, and after a more in-depth examination, it doesn't seem like there will be any long-lasting physical damage. Both should make a full recovery, though the mental scars, they may take a lot longer to heal. Now, in an ideal world, Julian and Carolyn would be allowed to rest for a while, to come to terms with the fact that they're alive and well after such a horrific ordeal. But time's not on the police's side. There are fears that whoever kidnapped the couple will come for them again. So, as soon as they're able, police interview Carolyn and Julian. The young woman goes first, showing incredible bravery. According to her, she was stuck in the trunk of the SUV for hours as it bounced over rough terrain. Eventually, she felt the car slowing, and then the engine stopped. Her kidnapper, dressed all in black, lifted her out of the trunk and dragged her to a clearing in the woods. There, he pulled a knife from his pocket and dangled it in front of her. Carolyn prepared herself for the imminent attack but it never came. Instead of stabbing her, he hacked off her clothing, leaving her naked on the cold, hard ground. In another surprising move, he peeled the duct tape from her mouth and just walked away. However, he didn't go far. He only took a few steps away from her and he picked up a shovel. With some effort, he thrust it into the dry earth and began heaving mounds of soil into a pile. Before long, the meaning of his work became clear. 
he was digging Carolyn's grave. Carolyn began to plead with him, though the kidnapper paid no attention and he just kept digging. Carolyn changed tactics. She started screaming for help, but because they were in such a remote spot, no one heard her. Resigned to the fact that no help was coming, Carolyn resorted to prayer. It seemed that God was listening. After a couple hours of backbreaking work, the kidnapper suddenly dropped his shovel and left the clearing. She wasn't sure if he was gone for good or he was simply grabbing more supplies from the car. Either way, it didn't change much. Carolyn was still bound and naked and presumably miles away from civilization. Escape was impossible, so she simply lay there. A little while later, she heard noises from the bush. The snapping of twigs and the rustling of dry leaves. A hoarse voice called out. A voice she recognized. It was Julian. She screamed back as loud as her parched throat would let her. The noises coming from the dense forest got closer. And then, impossibly, her boyfriend appeared. He too was naked. His hands were tied and his body was covered in scrapes and cuts. But he was alive. After a tear-filled reunion, Julian found a knife on the ground near the grave and cut her bindings. By now, night was drawing in, and the temperature was plummeting towards freezing. They searched through the things the kidnapper left behind, and it seemed that Lady Luck was smiling down on them. They found a sleeping bag, now, fearful that the kidnapper might still return, they ran away from the clearing before bedding down for the night. They huddled together in the sleeping bag, desperate to keep warm. The next morning, with no knowledge of where they were and no phones or maps, the couple decided to simply walk in the hope that they might stumble across a road or a house. But it quickly became apparent that they were a long way from civilization. They walked all day. The sun was blisteringly hot, and they didn't have any water. Dehydration was a real threat, as were the venomous snakes and spiders that lurked in the undergrowth. As night descended on their second day in the wild, the temperature plummeted once more. Just like the night before, the couple retreated into their sleeping bag. A couple of monotonous days passed, with the couple seemingly getting no closer to civilization, despite the miles they'd walked. And then, disaster struck. Julian and Carolyn wandered into a clearing to find the hastily dug grave. They'd unknowingly circled back on themselves. Panic set in, and understandably, Carolyn wanted to run in case the kidnapper was lurking nearby waiting for him. But Julian had other ideas. He had a quick look around the clearing and discovered a bag with their clothes, as well as a map, bottles of water, and some food. Eventually, using their newly gained supplies, they managed to find their way to the road where the farmer had picked them up. Julian's account of the harrowing ordeal is similar, except for the beginning. He tells the police that as he was examining the roadkill by the side of the track, 
he heard quick footsteps. Before he could react, someone clubbed him over the back of the head with a metal bar. The next thing he knew, it was nighttime and he was naked and tied up. Thankfully, he managed to get himself upright and find Carolyn. It's an unbelievable story of suffering and then eventual rescue. And it provides the police with a much needed lead. If they can find that clearing with the kidnappers abandoned items still scattered across the ground, they might just find something that guides them to the perpetrator's door. The search party, fueled by renewed determination, managed to locate the clearing where Carolyn was held. The site is just as the young lovers described it, with a half-dug grave and abandoned tools discarded around it. Detectives examine the clearing, hoping that something they recover will help narrow down the search for the kidnapper. They uncover some tools half buried in the pit and examine the others that were discarded around the clearing. Eventually, they make an unexpected discovery, and what they found will shock you. You see, after some speedy forensic work, it quickly becomes apparent that the items they managed to recover, the rope, the duct tape, the shovel, and the knife, all belong to none other than Julian Buckwald himself. Yeah, yeah, you heard right. The news that no one could have predicted turns the whole investigation on its head. It seems Carolyn's loving boyfriend was behind the attack all along. It sort of makes sense, right? I mean, after all, how was he able to find the exact spot Carolyn was being held so quickly after the kidnapper left? And isn't it a little convenient that their abductor left the knife as well as supplies to help the couple with their eventual escape? Now, of course, there could be an innocent explanation. The kidnapper may have made a spur-of-the-moment decision to abduct Julian and Carolyn and got lucky that there were tools he could use in the trunk of Julian's car. Or maybe they'd planned it for months, knowing that the couple were avid fans of hiking, often carrying potentially life-saving supplies when they disappeared into the wilderness. And anyway, why would Julian, a young man who was very much in love, put himself and his girlfriend in such a perilous position. The police need to speak to Julian again, in the hope that he can clear up some of their burning questions. But what if Julian's figured out that he hasn't tricked the police as well as he thought? In the hospital, he'd been treated as a victim. No one was keeping an eye on him. Could he have used this time to make his escape? Thankfully not. When police summon Julian to the police station, he duly obliges. Now, in the interview room, offers begin by examining the back of Julian's head. You might remember the story he told the police in his initial interview, that someone snuck up behind him and bashed him over the head with a metal bar. Police figure that's worth checking out. After all, that's going to leave a mark, right? But when they examine him, it's clear that he made that part up. There doesn't appear to be a cut or even a scratch where he claims he got hit. Next, 
The police lay out the evidence they have against him. The lies about how he was attacked, his ownership of the tools recovered at the graveside. They make it very clear that they believe Julian is the one who orchestrated the whole scheme. And even in the face of the overwhelming evidence against him, Julian denies any involvement, and he manages to hold out for quite a while. But eventually, he's forced into a corner, and his stony exterior cracks. In the end, he confesses to what the police suspect. Julian Buckwald was the kidnapper all along. Police ask him to explain why he did what he did, to try and help them understand the madness that lay behind his plan. But Julian remains tight-lipped. Police let him in on a secret. He's looking at serious jail time, whether he talks or not. But it would be in his best interest if he did. They leave the room, allowing Julian some time to think. It doesn't take long for him to reach a decision. When the interviewing officers reappear, he agrees to tell his twisted tale. On the day of the kidnapping, as he traveled along the dirt track, he pretended to spot some roadkill. When he pulled the car to the side of the road, he purposely parked too far away, which meant he had to double back on himself out of Carolyn's view. Now safely out of sight, he retrieved a bag with a balaclava, gloves, and dark clothing in it that he'd left for himself sometime in the recent past. Once he was suitably disguised, he ran back towards the car and took his girlfriend hostage. When they reached the clearing in Alpine Woods, Julian began to dig the pit. Except it wasn't a grave for Carolyn. It was, in fact, a hole where he planned on burying evidence that would link him to the crime. When he ran out of the clearing, he returned to his car and hid it deep within the bush. Now, with phase one of the plan complete, he moved on to phase two, taking off his clothes, tying his own hands and feet together, and transforming into the role of the victim. Now, you might be wondering about the motive behind this bizarre crime. Well, Julian's about to get to that. He claims he never wanted to hurt Carolyn. He really was very much in love with her. In fact, he was so in love with her, he wanted to make love to her. He couldn't wait any longer. So, he kidnapped her, stripped her, and just happened to find a single sleeping bag. He thought the prospect of imminent death and the proximity of their naked bodies might convince Carolyn that consummating their relationship would be seen as okay in God's eyes. But despite Julian repeatedly trying to convince her, Carolyn stayed true to her beliefs, much to his annoyance. When it was clear she wasn't going to bend to the pressure he was putting on her, he decided the ruse had gone on long enough. Using a map he had covertly stowed away, he managed to locate the clearing with the pit and found their clothes before leading them to a road. The whole time, Carolyn thought they were lost, but actually, Julian had known exactly where they were. In August 2009, Julian is arrested for his horrific crime. Now, 
That might sound like the end of this tragic, outlandish tale. There's one more twist. You see, between being arrested and actually being sentenced, Julian is released on bail. And rather than sit around and accept his fate, he has a better idea. It's September 2009. A plane screeches to a halt on the tarmac at Chennai Airport in India. Julian Buckwald grabs his luggage and disembarks, trying to blend in with the other weary passengers who are directed towards passport control. He managed to sneak his way out of the country by using a fake passport and altering his appearance. Though, how he managed to escape from Australia is anyone's guess. You see, the disguise he had chosen for himself is so bad, it's laughable. It's obvious that Julian's raven black hair has been dyed recently. It's just too dark and unnatural. And stranger still, he's applied layers of fake tan to his pale skin in order to try and pass himself off as an Indian man. The fake tan is patchy and badly applied. There's even an area on his forehead that he's missed entirely. It's hard to imagine that the official who let him on the plane in Australia will still be employed when the news of his disappearance gets out. At passport control, Julian approaches the desk and hands his travel document to the official behind the glass partition. He watches as the official checks the Indian passport before glancing up at him. He notices the look of suspicion that flits across their face. The official lowers their gaze and scrutinizes the passport one more time. The document itself is real, but Julian has replaced the photograph with one of his own. It's a realization the official must have come to because Julian is led away from the main queue and into a side room. Julian's audacious bid for freedom is over, almost before it began. He's refused entry to India and instead is herded onto a return flight to Singapore. When he lands, Australian authorities are waiting for him. After further questioning, it's believed that Julian was attempting to flee to Germany. When his court date rolls around, Julian is sentenced to just under eight years for the kidnapping of Carolyn Watson. An extra six months are added for his escape attempt. Julian Buckwald's heinous crime leaves a scar on all those involved. The community in which he grew up can barely believe that the mild-mannered, devout Christian boy they knew and loved could be capable of such a monstrous scheme. His victim, Carolyn Watson, sadly may never fully recover from the abuse and mental torture he subjected her to in those deep, dark woods. Victoria Police will go on to investigate other cases. After all, crime doesn't sleep. But the case of Carolyn Watson's kidnapping will surely live long in the memory as one of the most bizarre cases the country has ever seen. Next time on Detectives Don't Sleep. It's 2003. When four gunshots ring out in the Texas city of Sugarland, killing two members of the Whitaker family and badly injuring two more, the news is met with disbelief in the community. 
After all, what motive would anyone have to gun down this well-liked family in cold blood? That's the question Detective Marshall Slot needs to answer. At first, police think that it's simply a robbery gone wrong. But there are some details that just don't add up. And before long, Detective Slot finds himself tangled up in one of the most bizarre and challenging investigations he'll ever face. Join us next time on Detectives Don't Sleep for A Family Affair. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com.